is it rolling, Bob? Talking Dylan. He's your host, Lucas Hare. He's your host, Kerry Shale. But he's our special guest, comedian Nish Kumar. The me, I'm still on the road, heading for another joint. We always did feel the same, we just saw from a different point of view. Hey, <laughs> thanks for bringing a guitar. This whole thing is like a stress dream. <laughs> <laughs> so why did you choose to sing us that little ditty? Well, so you guys very kindly asked me to do the podcast, which I was very excited to do. Mm. And because I performed the Bowie song on Adam Buxton, you suggested it might be a good idea for being free, which I always have to say, just so it doesn't sound like I rocked up with the guitar. <laughs> like, oh, no, we begged you to bring the guitar. Because <laughs> I am also aware that you've had actual musicians on this podcast who have not decided to sing. <laughs> no, exactly. Um, Billy but, Bragg did tell a joke, though. Well, that's so. good. Well, that's, yeah. <laughs> um, I just... Um, uh, it's difficult when you're sort of trying to pick which Dylan line you would use if somebody asked you. But I thought I always think that line of from Tangled Up and Blue is the closest you'll ever get to Bob Dylan explaining himself. Um, I think the me, I'm still on the road heading for another joint is pretty much a description of him creatively in terms of his restlessness and the way that he sort of lives now. You know, he's th this never ending tour seems like it's never going to end. And I there's something about the spirit of his restlessness and his need to keep moving forward and also just literally the the fact that he's grown into the thing that I think he always wanted to be when he was 20 years old, which is just a travelling mm. blues and folk singer. The fact that he's living like that is... Um, the best way to summarise him is probably those... Those couple of lines. It's his version of, of Woody Allen's theory about the shark that has to keep moving forward. Moving forward. Yeah, that's right. right. Yeah, that's yeah. exactly. It's, yeah. yeah, it's a very it's a very similar spirit. But can you relate to it as you, you do a lot of touring yourself? So yeah, sure. That, do you listen to Dylan when you're on the road? I mean, I listen to it, Dylan is like probably the most enduring and important creative relationship of my life. I think that. Um, I, I don't think that there's a period where... I, it, there's never been a period where I stopped mm. listening to him. It just depends on which bit of Dylan I decide to pick out at any given time. Mm. Um, and when I was on tour last, we were listening to a lot of stuff in the car um, and I am always keen to not inflict too much Dylan on whoever's, whoever's in the car with me. Um, the phase that I'm in currently, uh, because of the Scorsese doc last year, mm -hmm. I'm back in the Rolling Thunder review phase. Mm -hmm. um, so that the bootleg series of album, the Rolling Thunder review, probably came out maybe like 2001, 2002 maybe. Yeah, and so I remember getting it at the time and really that was one of the ones that I listened to incessantly. Um, but because of the... Scorsese doc I've been going back through because mm. that is that's an extraordinary what's interesting about him is that the studio albums all sound so different but there are certain live phases that are significant parts of his musical evolution and it's just one of the reasons why 
people go deep with Dylan because there's phases that exist of his creativity that aren't documented in a conventional way. Um, you know, there isn't an album you can point to. I mean, you can point to Desire, but mm. Desire sort of is only half the story of the music of the Rolling Thunder. Like, that that band is <laughs> is phenomenal. I know. I, I listened to Desire the other day for the first time in ages, the actual album, mm. and I was surprised at how kind of sedate it was because yeah. I've been listening to all the live stuff. Yeah, yeah. It, yeah. it sounds like... You know, it's it's just a jolly good album, but it's just it's not nearly as exciting as the. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, it's not. It doesn't. It's not as. It doesn't have the kaleidoscopic range that the live stuff has. Mm. I think particularly, the electric guitars. Mick Ronson comes into play so much more on those live albums, um, and the I really love Desire. But it feels quite deliberately sort of quite spare mm, and mm. pared back, whereas the live version sounds almost completely different. But then I think, you know, the 66 live, the bootleg Manchester Free Trade Hall and the official Royal Albert Hall gig, mm. that that sounds, you can't really pin that to Highway 61 or Blonde on Blonde. The versions of those songs that he did with the band are such, it's just completely different style. It's real lightning in a bottle stuff, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. I mean, the, the Desire, I think, was recorded in July. Yeah. Rolling Thunder Review is October, and he's a completely different person. Yeah, yeah. The songs have completely changed. And if you, as you say, if you listen to Isis in that documentary or on the, on the big old box, <laughs> yeah. or even mm. some of the 76 recordings, which are really good, yeah. and you go back to the, the album and you think, wow, that, that changed a lot. Yeah, 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 well, yeah, yeah. The, the album sounds like a rehearsal, really, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, that's right, yeah. Like I mean, they're rehearsal. almost demos. <laughs> yeah. But then that's his relationship with recording music is just... Mm. There's no sense that it's a you're hearing the definitive versions of mm. these songs. Mm. It's just a snapshot of where his mind is. That's and that's why I think I don't I, I don't know if Tangled Up and Blue is my favorite Dylan song necessarily, but it is my favorite to explain why people become so obsessive about Bob Dylan. Mm. Um, and um, because he, I don't think he's ever finished it. In his mind, he still seems to be... I mean, he's playing with the tenses, you know? It's not yeah. even just... And the uh, perspective of the song, you know, it's hops in and out of the third person. I think the album version is all in the first person, but then maybe it does drift... I, I, I think, I, he, sh I think I, he moves it around from the very beginning. Yeah. But then certainly by the time you get to the recording on Real Live, that's, yeah, that's, that's the utterly sort of different. The grand ballad arrangement. That, um, and that's a completely different... Yeah. You know, he... And I, like, I just really like that restlessness around. Mm. Did you see the um, the exhibition, the, the Mondo Scripto exhibition, when when they had his lyrics kind of drawing... So no, they, they, they basically <laughs> had lyrics dotted around the, the gallery and a lot of them were noticeably different and Tangled yeah. Up Blue was one of them. And most of them had a drawing next to them. And yeah. It, it just seemed like a totally irrelevant drawing. Sometimes, you know, there was a picture of a man walking down a road. You think, oh, well, I know which song's <laughs> that from, that's from. But Tangled Up and Blue, next to the picture of Tangled Up and Blue, was a picture of um, a really old beat-up car in some really long grass. <laughs> and you stood at it, and you, you stood there and you looked at it and you thought, Tangled Up and Blue, the sun shining. Drove that car as far <laughs> as we could. <laughs> and abandoned it, that rest. <laughs> And every single one of them had one of those it's, little things. It was a weird exhibition, that one, because uh, it, it was the lyrics, but it, they were all handwritten by Dylan. Yeah, and, yeah. And uh, just imagining him sitting at a table. Yeah, and rewriting them all. You know, and maybe that's why he changed some of them. Yeah. But, and, and his hand would get really cramped for some of them. Other ones, he was probably drunk or something, and they were very long. Because yeah, right, his handwriting yeah. kept changing, you know, because he's Bob Dylan. <laughs> just like his voices, yeah. Yeah. So when when did this all happen for you? When did you did you come out of the cradle um, loving no, Bob no. Dylan? No, no. I um, 
I when I was about fifteen years old, we went on a. Uh, but actually, I was fourteen. It was just before I turned fifteen. Hmm. We went on this like weird field trip to. <laughs> we went to Sheffield for a history field trip because we were studying something about the Industrial Revolution and the Arkwright, all that cotton mill stuff. And we stopped as like a treat at a now defunct building called the Sheffield History of Popular Music. And I was just listening to, they, it was, there were like four rooms. It was not great. But I was listening to like a weird, there's like a listening post and you could just listen to some albums that they had deemed classic albums. And actually I, my cousins were big Jimi Hendrix fans. Mm. And so I started listening to Electric Ladyland and I remember listening to the first three songs and I just remember going, great, well, my entire worldview has just changed. Um, and so I bought Electric Ladyland, got really into Hendrix, and then via Electric Ladyland, obviously through All Along the Watchtower, mm-hmm. read the liner notes and it's written by B. Dylan. And you sort of, I, I guess if you're, I'm 34, and when we were at school we used to sing Blowing in the Wind like it was a hymn. Yeah. So I guess there's just a mm-hmm. part of you that has a, a a sort of idea in your mind of who Bob Dylan is roughly. And I, I was a bit into the Beatles at the time, so I sort of knew roughly that they were big Dylan fans. And you know Blowing in the Wind and you sort of think you have some vague idea. And then, but so my friend Andy gave me the 1967 greatest hits mm. that he had, which is, that his dad had, which is just a best of everything up to Blonde on Blonde. Mm. I say it doesn't include anything from the debut album, but it's just uh, a greatest hits mm. uh, of, the, of the pre-John Wesley Harding 1960s output. Mm. Um, and it's, I mean, that's a pretty extraordinary place to start mm. because you sort of realise that this is, I mean, he, by the time that period ends, he's probably about 25, I think. Mm. Yeah. yeah, 20. Yeah. He be, yeah, he's about 25, 26 when the motorcycle accident happens. And so that's... The if you think about the style changes that happen just in that short period of time, it's a pretty exciting thing to get like a quick precede history of. And so from then on, I was just, um, I you know, I was just, I was, I was getting everything. And I do think there is something really interesting. Did you guys see Blinded by the Light? I know you have had yes. Safras on this yes. show. There's a really amazing bit in that movie, which is a, a beautiful film about Safras Mansur's obsession with. Bruce Springsteen. Mm-hmm. There's an amazing bit in it where it's kind of in the 80s and him and his friend, who are both of um, British Asian ethnic heritage, and one of them is trying to get Bruce Springsteen to be played on the school radio tannoy system. And the guy says, Bruce Springsteen, isn't he that guy that our dads are into? Mm-hmm. And the two Asian kids look at him and go, not our dads. <laughs> <laughs> and I definitely think there's a part of that at work because when I was a kid, all my friends used to be like, oh, that's the music my dad listens to. And my parents liked the Beatles a bit and they liked some of the music that was big when they moved to Britain. So like things like ELO and stuff like that. Mm. But they they had no specific relationship with Dylan. So I didn't have that association with it, mm. that it was like a drag and something that your parents in, forced you to endure when you were growing up. Yeah. So to me, I just couldn't, I just couldn't believe it. It just absolutely blew my mind. I had no full context for it. And so I just bought as much as I could possibly buy that. There was a period where pretty much all I spent my birthday money and Christmas money on 
was Bob Dylan CDs. And also it's quite a good period to get into Bob Dylan because it was before they released the audio remastered CDs. So they were just dirt cheap. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I just used to, I got, I bought Time Out of Mind for one pound, like a new <laughs> CD copy of Time Out of Mind for a quid from WH Smith's in Croydon. Yeah. And so it was really easy and cheap for me just to buy almost everything. But that's phenomenal. I mean, in terms of, if you were eating a meal, that would be like eating an awful lot of food in a very short space of time. You went from the original Greatest Hits in 67 mm. to Time Out of Mind, and then, then you saw him around 2002, didn't you? That's correct, And yeah, we're yeah. talking about, in about, what, two years? You did all of that? Yeah, two years, yeah. Wow. Well, I think you're that, I think you're so susceptible at that age. But were you, were you able to talk to anybody about this? I mean, did you have any friends who were into <laughs> yeah. Dylan? You so, know, I, sounds... so I had, so my friend Andy who actually gave me the original Dylan set and my friend Ollie, and I've actually done the stand-up half hour that's on Netflix that I did, opens with three stories about going to see, uh, I went to see James Brown, uh, David Bowie and Prince, all within the space of about three years, I think mm. four years maybe. Um, and... Uh, one of and this the the truth of it and what I explained in the routines is that when I was a kid I used to go and see old bands with my friends Ollie and Andy but then we went to different universities and so I had to go on my own so it's about the experience of going to those gigs on your own but Ollie and Andy were liked Dylan but they had other stuff that they were more into like Ollie was massively into Stevie Wonder and Billy Joel and Andy was massively into Andy was always a bit more lent towards the avant-garde a bit more and so he was he was the one who was getting us into velvet underground um and you know captain beefheart right um and so we all lent in different ways but there was a sort of unspoken principle whereby if one of us wanted to go to a gig the other two had to participate as well yeah (laughs) and so they were they were like dylan sympathetic if not like outright (laughs) dylan fans but i just i was you know, I was absolutely obsessed. And I got the um, Howard Soonis book mm-hmm. down the highway, mm-hmm. which is, I, the, from what I can tell, the closest anyone has come to a sort of definitive biography of Dylan. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, and so I, I just read everything and bought everything. And it, it was, you know, it, I, my hair looks the way it looks Largely. <laughs> hey, of... You've got to grow it. I mean, it's normally <laughs> straight, isn't it? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Part in the middle. <laughs> My hair is like, it, it, it grows the uh, it's it's it grows the way it grows because of the Blonde on Blonde album cover. Mm, yeah. Um, so, yeah, it was, you know, it was just, it was a great time. And so by the time he came around, so he was touring Love and Theft in 2002, mm-hmm. and it was the first gig I'd ever been to. Um wow. And it was at the now defunct London Arena, which was still, uh, the floor was still wet from it being used as a hockey stadium, <laughs> like the, the week before. Um, and um, so by then I must have been deep in it because mm. I, I definitely bought Love and Theft uh, the day it came out here. Mm. And which I think is the week after 9-11, because I think the American release was, was 9-11. 9/11. Yeah. 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 No, we, it was the same day in this country. Was it the yeah, same day? Yeah. yeah. God, I got mine on the 8th. Yeah. Yeah. That's weird. What a weird association that that album has. I know, Because the Mississippi has the line, sky full of fire, plane <clears throat> falling down as yeah, well. So I'm avoiding the south side the best I can. Yeah, yeah. Is it yeah. plane falling down? Because I thought it was pain falling down. No, pain. Yeah, it pain. is pain. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. That you scared that me. That was here. a Freudian slip yeah. for me. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so I it must have been it, over a period of about two years that I absorbed as much of it wow. as I could humanly consume. And you mm. didn't feel... Like, I went through a period... I don't know when it was, 20 years ago, where I felt kind of guilty about listening to Dylan so much. Yeah. And then I read an article somewhere where somebody said, well, I listen to Bob Dylan every day. I mean, it wouldn't be a day yeah, yeah, with, yeah. if I didn't listen to Bob Dylan. And that made me feel so much better. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And now I don't feel bad at all, you know. There were lots of cool things that came out in that period because also there was kind of renewed interest in his work around the year 2000 in general because mm. things have changed and the Oscars mm. and then and there was a great piece in The Observer by Sean O'Hagan yeah. about um, and, it, and the headline was so how does it feel and it was just it, it was just an article that was essentially just a sort of potted history of Dylan but it was great for me because it it just very quickly put the chronology in order and gave me mm. a sense of the shape of the career and where Blood on the Tracks fits in and where he was when that when that album was released and Time Out of Mind and the kind of creative nadir of the mid 80s and it just put everything in order for me so mm. there were a couple of key things that happened around that time that like helped focus my Dylan fandom. Was it around 2000? But I think I've got a memory of this. Jonathan Ross used to have a Radio 2 show on Saturday mornings and there was one week where he couldn't do it and Bob Geldof sat in for him. Yeah. And Bob Geldof got into an argument with a listener who didn't like Bob Dylan. <laughs> and basically, I think it culminated in Bob Geldof saying to the listener, if you don't like Bob Dylan, you don't like music. <laughs> I'm not sure he was invited back after that. <laughs> well, Geldof, they were warned. The guy really. on live broadcast yeah. is, has always been a risk. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I don't think you get to choose the people that influence you or that... There are times, there are just times in your life where you hear the thing that you needed to hear at that time. Mm. And Dylan was exactly, I just remember listening to it going, this is for me. This is, and I think it helped that I wasn't approaching it with any wider baggage of who he was or what his work was. Mm. I just heard the songs and thought, this song, these songs were written for me and they are speaking to me and me alone. And I don't think you get to, you get a handful of those people in your life um, and a handful of works of art and bits of culture. And I don't think you really get to choose the people that you, that speak to you. It just, for whatever reason happens and it cuts right through you and you are not the same person after you engage with it in that way. And when you saw him, did you, did you... I mean, for example... It's like you, a religious you, experience. I mean, you're talking about like 40 years of music constituted yeah. into, into a, a, this kind of uh, binge of buying records and then seeing him. Did you did you notice kind of different eras in there or did you take it all on board? When you went to see him, did you think, oh, this is different or did it just seem like more of the same thing? The, I, re I absolutely loved it. And I've never seen been to see him again because there is a part of me that's concerned that I would corrupt that memory. Mm -hmm. there's, I think there's a couple of things at work here. I mean, it was the first gig I'd ever been to. But also I was so invested in the myth of Dylan that I wasn't going expecting him to play the songs like they are on the album. Like I'd obviously been, I was obviously like prepared enough that I was not going to get somebody doing a greatest hit set. And listen, mm. I've seen a lot of those bands 
and I've seen them deliver greatest hit sets. And, you know, when I saw the Rolling Stones at Glastonbury and it was an absolutely extraordinary evening and they kind of played the songs as they sound on the record and Bobby Keys was still alive and he was playing mm. sax on Brown Sugar and that was great. But I don't want that from Dylan. I want that from the Rolling Stones. I kind of want Mick Jagger to pretend he's 25. I, 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 but I don't want that from Dylan. I can't think of anything I would have enjoyed less than watching him sing and play the songs well. <laughs> it's, it, it, for me, the way that all the messing with the arrangements and he'd started doing that thing around the around that time where he does this weird singing technique where he sort of yeah. sings and then jumps an octave. Yeah. <laughs> Mr. Temporary Man! Like that. Like that jump. And for me, it just enhanced the myth of him. And it was exactly what I what I wanted from him. And I often talk to people who've seen him and were like, oh, it was rubbish and it sounded weird. And I was like, what, the, what were you expecting? <laughs> Why did you think it would be anything different? And I, I wanted to have the myth of Bob Dylan fed. And it absolutely did. Also, I think there's another mitigating factor. They played a lot of songs from Love and Theft, which he recorded with the touring band. Mm. So there was mm. a real energy to mm. those songs, to like Cry A While and Summer Days. Mm. They, there's mm. a real verve, because those are the songs the band were really familiar with. But also, at the end, they did a three... This was still in the era where he could still play guitar on stage. Mm. They did a three electric guitar all along the Watchtower, fully in the Hendrix arrangement. And it, it was one of the greatest moments of my entire life. It was fucking amazing. Yeah, he was great live around then. Around yeah. Those 2000, 2001, 2002 shows were all really good, you know. It was it, yeah. It was it, they were, it was a really great show, but also it was exactly. I was so in, invested in the myth of Bob Dylan and the character of Bob Dylan. It would have been a disappointment if he hadn't tried to fuck with us. Mm, damn mm. right. Yeah. Have there been any songs that you sort of have lived with for a long time that have come back and sort of changed that you've that you've noticed, say, as you've gotten older? Yeah, totally. I think. Um, I mean, I think. Blood on the Tracks is an album that I I think mm. when I when I was younger I would have easily said my favorite album was Bring It All Back Home and I still love Bring It All Back Home um not least because Bob Dylan's 115th Dream is like is a funny song yeah. and it's 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 a really funny she asked me for some collateral and I pulled down my pants. It's still like, that's still a great joke. <laughs> like, that's still, you know, that's all. That's still a great joke. And um, it's all right, Ma. And, you know, it's, it's all over now, Baby Blue is another one of my favourite songs. But, you know, the older you get, the longer you live, the more you sort of get drawn towards things like Blood on the Tracks mm. and you sort of see it as a kind of... I'm probably about the age now he was when he did mm. Blood on the Track. I mean, there's right. a, that's a terrifying thought. <laughs> but I, I'm 34, so I think probably about the age when he recorded Blood on the Tracks, mm. or maybe maybe when Blood on the Tracks came out. Cause yeah. I guess they would have recorded it in 74. Yeah, recorded and then it's And then it's the Christmas mm -hmm. where he was back in Minnesota, and then they... Yeah. So, yeah, so, you know, I'm around that age now. Mm. Which is, I mean... Always enjoyable to have the lack of achievement in your life <laughs> really? laid out when you start <laughs> directly comparing yourself to to Bob Dylan. But um, but yeah, so I think as I the older I get, the more I 
see the depth in a lot of those songs. Um, and, um, you know, a song like Tangled Up in Blue, you're sort of always trying to pin it down and there doesn't seem to be a definitive version and he's messing with it the whole time. But... Um, yeah, I was listening to it the other day and, and you know, the, the line, uh, he hunts her down by the waterfront yeah, yeah. docks and with a parrot that talks. Yeah. I was just, that jumped out at me because I thought, yeah. he hunts her down by the waterfront yeah. docks. <clears throat> what a, how sad is that? I mean, it's yeah. as an image. And then the joke yeah, of yeah. having a parrot on your shoulder while you're doing it. Like, is he some old pirate? Some old drunken oh, pirate? What's going on? And it, but it's, it's just so sad. Maybe she'll pick him out again. Maybe, maybe she'll yeah. pick him out is, again. I mean, oh, that is God. that is an extraordinary... Uh, but also, the, I think the reason that you can go so deep with Blood of the Tracks is because there's vast lyric changes in some of the songs. Mm. And the version of uh, Shelter from the Storm that is on the Jerry Maguire soundtrack... Yep. There's a whole verse in that that is now the bonds are broken, but they can be retied mm -hmm. for one more journey to the woods, the holes where spirits hide. It's mm -hmm. a never ending battle for a piece that's always torn. Come in, she said, I'll give you shelter from the storm. And you're like, you, that's a deleted <laughs> yeah, cut. No, really. That's a deleted cut. <laughs> and uh, just the line. Uh, and I mean, I think even if you if you know the fact that he's writing about a divorce and the phrase is a never ending battle for a piece that's always torn. You're like, that is, but it, just in general, the idea of getting older and on whatever level, having your heart broken or the sadness that just starts to set in as you get older. Lines like, it's a never ending battle for a piece that's always torn are always, you know, always resonate. And a song like Up To Me, I feel, mm. is which is on the biograph set, which is another one that they they left off blood on the tracks, has some absolutely extraordinary just 14 months I've only smiled once and I yeah. didn't do it consciously <laughs> yeah that's exactly <laughs> it yeah that's just fucking yeah. great isn't it yeah and, and yeah and it's a, it's a that song particularly is a sort of really interesting mix of the emotional stuff of Blood on the Tracks but also he was he was becoming a really interesting narrative writer mm -hmm. um, at that at that point I mean in the mid 60s things like Hattie Carroll are really gripping narrative poems um but it felt like he was becoming more confident to build stories out of his own mind in some of those songs. And um yeah, I've only got me one good shirt left and it smells of stale perfume. Yeah, like yeah. there's it's like and and then the stuff on desire, like he's got a real sense of how to build narrative momentum. Mm. Um but yeah, so I, I think as I get older, I'm looking forward to living long enough to understanding some bits of love and theft in new yeah. ways. <laughs> yeah, or lovesick. Yeah, lovesick is... I, I don't actually ever want to get there. I'm I'm older, <laughs> but I don't want to get sick of love. I... But, but then again, it turns out that he's not sick of love. He's, no, he's sick with love. He's sick for love. Yeah. It's the same thing, you know. And if um, there's one other thing I want to ask you about, about being close to Dylan, any experiences that brought you closer. If you Google Bob Dylan Nish Kumar, trying to find out everything you've ever said about him, yeah. there's about 10 pages of the incident last December where... Yeah. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> you got a bread roll yeah. thrown at I you. got a bread roll thrown <laughs> at me um, at a, uh, a charity dinner. Um, I just realised, because it was a tax-deductible charity organisation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was, yeah, it was... And the next day... I still don't understand how this possibly happened, but it sort of escalated into a kind of weird media circus. And it was a 
there was so many, so many articles written about it. And I, um, there were various people that asked me to comment and I just sort of left it. And then I posted a, a video on my Twitter feed of um, Dylan, but it's a backstage footage of him just going, this booing. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody booed. Everybody yeah, worked yeah, out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah everybody and worked out. Yeah, and it's it's Dylan talking about the booing. Just because I thought that was a funny, I thought that was a funny way of, um, and also it's because it was really funny because as I started reading the incidents, it bore no resemblance to what had actually happened. Right, and there's and that and that's what he's talking about in the clip. Is somebody's talking about the Edinburgh show. And one of the newspaper reports said uh, everybody walked out. That's right. <laughs> and it's him sort of reacting to that and going, everybody walked out. I'm going to walk. <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> was there a moment on that stage where you thought, what would Bob do? Yeah, well, there was a moment that I thought of saying, I don't believe you, you're a liar. But I thought the reference would have been lost. You said, you know, you want me to leave, so I'm not going to yeah, leave. Yeah, that's right, yes. Uh, which I thought was beautiful. Yeah, well, this, yeah. Is the, this is the sort of problem of being a Dylan fan. I probably listened to that album about a hundred times in, like, in the, the week that I got it. <laughs> so, for me, it was like... <laughs> the booze don't. Yeah, <laughs> the booze did not affect me because I've been preparing to be booed for my entire life. I yeah, I just I I also thought it was a funny parallel to draw, but um, but yeah, it's I that sort of bloody-minded obstinance in the face of people just being dicks is mm. very inspiring. And there's a there's just always a degree with him of not quite ever doing what people expect of him mm. and. I'm so glad that the Scorsese movie found some of that footage because I do have an illegal bootleg DVD of Eat the Document, but yeah. it is not a handsome transfer. <laughs> You're among friends here. We've, we've all studied that, uh, that yeah. particular bit of footage. But that's why I'm so pleased that, yeah. they, that they cleaned it up and we actually got to see that moment happened. There's shitloads more. There's the, the the Tulsa archive. They put out little bits occasionally and you yeah. think, oh my God, how much more is there of this? Hours and hours well, of they, it. I think they just shot almost all of that tour yeah. in 66. I went to see Don't Look Back at the BFI. The first time I ever saw that movie was mm. in the cinema. Um, and that was another, you know, settling in my mind of this guy yeah. as a representation of a certain type of what it meant to be cool. <laughs> It's yeah. tough on a big screen with all that handheld stuff, though. I yeah, yeah. I saw it at the cinema, too. But it feels very exciting. Yeah. It feels very... It sort of... It rescues him from museum heritage status. Yeah. Mm. Things like Don't Look Back. And also, it's not... It's the sort of thing that I don't think could get made now because it is not a completely positive portrayal of him. No. His treatment of Joan Baez is appalling. Mm -hmm. And at the end the interview with the guy from Time magazine, yeah. you, there's a moment where you suddenly go, you're 23. Yeah. Like, you're you're so young. And all the things that he's saying to the Time magazine guy are show so much of his insecurity about the way that he's being written about. And it makes him seem like a sort of human being again. Mm. And, you, and it, so I don't think that you would be able to get that made or released now because it it's it is such a complicated portrayal of him and it's he's so fucking cool and the performances are so great mm. but 
it isn't a completely uncomplicated portrait of him. Well, you know, in No Direction Home, when he said he had that night with, uh, I think it's Liam Clancy, yeah. and they'd had several hundred pints of Guinness, and, mm. and he just and Liam Clancy looked him straight in the eyes and he said, "Remember, Bob, no fear, no envy, no meanness." And you think, <laughs> well, he didn't take that on board, did he? <laughs> <Yes>. No drugs. <laughs> yeah. no, no, he was obviously horrible. To you everybody. know, speeding out of his mind at that point. Yeah, as totally. Well. And and also, what manager would go on camera? Yeah, yeah. And show themselves doing a deal, and you know, just lying. Mm, yeah. With a smile on their face. Mm. Uh, you know, that would never n- not happen in a million years. No. And also, just just being in the in the car, which you often are. Yeah. And you really feel like you are in the car. Like you, mm. you do get a feeling of not what it's like to be Bob Dylan, but it's like what it's like to be in the car yeah. after a Bob Dylan concert with uh, with a crazy world all the, around. The end, because the end is the Albert Hall gig, mm. and mm. when you see him, if I mean, if you're talking about, I'm I'm reluctant to draw comparisons between my own performance and Dylan. <laughs> 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 I'm reluctant, but I will do it. But I will do it. I do think if you have done anything on stage in front of an audience and it's gone well, the um, him in the back of the car after the Albert Hall gig is the best representation of that yeah. I've ever seen in any film. Because you do, he did, he it, he's had a really good gig yeah. and he's a bit taken aback <laughs> by the experience of doing that at the Albert Hall. And you can see a little bit, because he he does seem so cool and in control in every sense, even, again, with Joan Byers in a negative sense, but he seems so sort of cool, self-possessed and in control. And it only unravels twice, and you see the glint of the young man mm. who has been put into this position. And one is the Time magazine interview, the other is in the back of the car, mm-hmm. because you can, you can see in his face, it's like, fuck. <laughs> I, I've just invented being yeah, a rock star. Yeah, yeah. Wow, it's, that's interesting. Is that the bit where he says, um, I wish I was Bob Dylan? Yeah, yeah, when, yeah. When is that? Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's the give the anarchist a cigarette bit. Yeah, give the, yeah that's it. Give yeah. the anarchist a cigarette, yeah. 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 And, but you could see in his face, and give the anarchist a cigarette is him recomposing himself and yeah. realising, mm-hmm. remembering he's on camera and saying something funny and cool. But the moment before give the anarchist a cigarette is you, you see... The, the guy who's gone, Shh, that was great. Well, he's inarticulate, isn't he? He yeah. says, that was a real thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just yeah, happened. yeah. And he, that's I've, I've he run say. out of words. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's quite an extraordinary thing. I do think the one thing that's worth every performer trying to get towards is Ginsburg's description of him performing in that mid-period mm. that's in No Direction Home, where he says something like he had focused his entire energy on the single breath that was emanating from his body. And... He had, he says something. I mean, it's like it's advice, but he's Alan Ginsberg, yes. so it's not like it would be useful if you could go. How did you do that? How did you? How can you achieve that state of focus and being present enough that the only thing coming out of your the only focus is on? But instead, Alan Ginsberg chooses to say he had become a column of air, which is a much more interesting turn of phrase, yeah. but not as useful for those of us in the performer guards. <laughs> um, but yeah, I love that description, that Ginsberg description of him. He'd mm. become a column of air. It's great. And it's, it's the, you know, but that and that's what's wonderful about Dylan is that's only one of several periods you can enjoy of his. I mean, you guys had Sheila Atom on and Girl from the North Country was, what a pleasant surprise mm. 
it was what a great show and what an extraordinary achievement to take some of the worst recordings of Bob Dylan <laughs> known to man yeah. and turn them into incredible songs. Yeah. Like, tight connection. I know. I found myself, you know, weeping yeah. as she was doing it. And I thought, I don't even like this song. Yeah, What's going on? <laughs> yes. But then she taught me that it was a brilliant song. It's an extraordinary song. Sometimes it must be said. I mean, I, I go th- I'm go. i just going through a huge Bob Dylan playlist on Spotify now. Yeah. There's like a hundred different covers. And, and it's really opening all sorts of stuff up for me. Songs that Dylan himself kind of massacred. Yeah. A, you know, sometimes you hear somebody else do them and you go, oh my God, uh, I get it now. It's yeah. a brilliant song. Yeah. I mean, I think something like Nina Simone's version of I Shall Be Released mm. is so much... Dylan's version is almost sort of kind of tossed out. And Nina Simone mm. turns it into, I mean, she was incredible at taking, you know, not just Dylan, but so many other different songs mm. like Leonard Cohen and taking the bare bones of quite a spare recording and making it feel very epic and mm. incredible. But yeah, her version of I Shall Be Released, I always mm. think of as being just an absolutely mm. phenomenal cover. Every, ev- everything that Hendrix did with... Dylan was, he, he always had a way of, you know, his version of Drifter's Escape mm. is mm. completely turns the song around. The live version of Can You Please Crawl Out Your Window that's on the yes. Hendrix BBC sessions is yeah. incredible. And again, yeah. like, turns that song into almost a kind of, like a sort of hard, like almost like a punky, like, yeah. you know, it's almost like an, an Iggy Pop song. Like, he completely mm. turns it around. And I, my thing with Dylan has always been the voice is so specific and he's such a bad singer but if you if it resonates with you it just goes right through you and yeah. there's no way for you to not connect with it uh, but i don't judge anybody who doesn't like dylan if you if there is not a single bob dylan song that you don't if if you can't think of one not by bob dylan any anyone who's covered it if you don't like a single then i think you a part of your humanity might be missing you don't like music <laughs> yeah yeah Geldof was right, man. Geldof was 100% on it. He was If you can listen to Jimi Hendrix's version of All Along the Watchtower or Nina Simone's version of I Shall Be Released and nod your head and go, well, I I got nothing out of that. (laughs) Then I I do not know what to say to you. Also, uh, I I heard, um, I think she did, yeah, she does Just Like a Woman as well. Yeah. Uh, And, you know, incredible. In fact, hearing women do Just Like a a Woman uh, is is. Because there have been tons of, of covers. That we, because some people who are wrong say that it's a misogynistic song. Yeah, right. I've never... It, that it it's hasn't even limits. occurred to it, it, me. It, 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 well, there's an element of, of everything in in everything that Dylan's done. Like, yeah, he, he yeah. sees yeah, all you the sides. He breaks yes, like a little girl. Yeah, yeah. The way he does. It's, 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 it's you know... Like, he's not, I don't know, but, you, but you say the way he does, but like... What, how does he do it? Like the way he does it is completely ambiguous. Yeah, no, he, he straddles tenderness and, and and bile very very well. Yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. He there's there's always that edge. To, there's that edge to a few songs that he's done, but um, but so many of his songs are every line of every song can be taken three or four different yeah, ways. Yeah, that's yeah. what he. That's what he is. Well, that and in that show there was a moment where, uh, in Sweetheart Like You which I just, I completely, like, listened to once, never thought about again. And then in the middle of Sweetheart Like You, in the show, I mean, again, you can't avoid the sort of political climate that we're in. Mm. But having seeing somebody on stage singing, they say patriotism is the last refuge to which a scoundrel clings. Mm. You rem- and then to have the line, um, 
steal a little and they'll throw you in jail, yeah. steal a lot and they make you a king. You're like, holy shit. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that you the whole you felt the entire audience at the old Vic suddenly mm. go, Oh Christ. Yeah. That's everything that's happening right now. Mm. You know, exactly. it's uh, it's yeah, so it's it that was a really pleasurable experience seeing that show and seeing some of the kind of 80s stuff be rescued from obscurity. And, you know, also, you, at some point, you have to realise he was a bad judge of his own work at points. Oh, God, yeah. yeah. You know, Infidels is an album I don't have a huge amount of love for, but it, any album would have been improved with the inclusion of Blind Willie McTell. Yeah. Any album. Yeah. And yet, the fact that he left... And also, I mean, po- I mean possibly my favourite song ever is Mama, You've Been On My Mind, mm-hmm. which... Again, it just didn't make the cut on another side of Bob Dylan. Mm-hmm. And you kind of go, how has that been left off? I don't understand how you missed that. And that, again, is why in the middle of me getting into it and finding that there's so much depth, and then just at the right time, I bought the bootleg volume one to three. Yeah. And suddenly you realise, oh, there's a whole world of stuff that never even made it mm-hmm. onto albums that is absolutely incredible mm-hmm. you know and th- that's when you get into the new york versions of blood on the tracks mm-hmm. which i don't i love i can understand why he didn't put them out as the single album because i think a, a guitar recording and the open tuning is so specific that i think it might have become a bit monotonous and actually the two versions mixed together are what make that album for me but the as individual versions, the version of Tangled Up in Blue and Idiot Wind. Mm. I mean, that stuff is insane. It's great. I remember someone in the sort of early nineties. I remember I think I bought maybe two Dylan albums, and a friend of mine said, "Have you got Blood on the Tracks?" I went, "No." I said, she said "Well, that's the one you should get next," and I got it. And I said, first of all, I said, why do you think I like it? He said, well, you, you like the blues. It's quite bluesy. Yeah. So I put Blood on the Tracks on thinking it was meant to be bluesy. And I thought, <laughs> well, it's not at all bluesy. This is really pissing me off. So I was on the back foot immediately. And by the time it got to Idiot Wind, I thought, what's this Yeti Wind? What's it even called? Idiot Wind? I can't hear that. And then when the bootleg series came out. You're a hard man. Out, I know. I know. <laughs> but then the bootleg series came out and I heard it and thought, fuck, that's the song. That is the song. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. You know, and it's a different reading entirely. Yeah. I yeah, and I think it's the one of the bootleg versions has the line about imitators who steal me blind. Like mm. that's on one of the mm. different mm. bootleg. And but I think the punch of the album version, you know, this like this just that line where he's like, I woke up on the roadside daydreaming about the way things sometimes are, and the way mm. that he attacks those verses, and pumped up by having a band behind him, it just it, I think. As much as I adore the New York versions, I think it would have been a less interesting experience to listen mm. to from beginning to end. But yeah, when you start discovering the bootleg series, you're like, this is this depth seem endless. Yeah. It's it goes deep. Even if you just went and, and made a playlist of all of all the great songs that he left off albums. Yeah, that's totally. Enough, you know. Yeah. Yeah. There's yeah, there's a song from I think that was recorded on um I think it's for Planet Waves. It's on one of the bootleg series. Nobody except you. Yeah, yeah. nobody yeah. except you. Oh my god! You're like, how did that? <laughs> how did that get left off? Yeah, I, the you Middle Eight alone is is just it's is a fantastic. Total yeah. Is that the now I've just passed mournfully by yeah. the place of the bones of life apart? Like Excellent. all of that stuff is yeah. like, you you kind of look at it and go, I I'm not sure that you. Have the best handle. <laughs> no, he must have just just gone. Eh, you know, no that that for some reason pissed me off. 
Well, that's that's why when when Blind Joan Millie Bi- McTell for some reason. Well, even when Joan Baez is kind of, he's almost forgotten. He hears her singing four letter word, loves mm. a four letter word, mm. and it's like that's a good song, and she's like, you wrote, <laughs> you wrote it, yeah. like it's all the speed that he was working through at that point is just. Um, it was just relentless. And well, particularly with Planet Waves, they, they deliberately went into the studio and said, we're not going to rehearse these songs, we're not yeah, going to practice right. them, I'm going to teach them to you, we're going to record them, then we move on to the next yeah. one. Um, and Robbie Robertson said about, I think he was talking about the, the 1966 tour, but it applies really well to Planet Waves. He said, Bob didn't want us to learn any of the songs, just play them. Yeah, right. And you get a, a quality in Planet Waves that they're all raw and then they're never going to be anything else because then they're moving on and I think Nobody Except You is a, is a brilliant example it's an incredible song mm. yeah. but I mean and that's the looseness of it is you can either that can either be maddeningly frustrating or it's something that you love like I have a lot of affection for another side of Bob Dylan yeah. even though if you put the tracks chronologically as they were recorded you can track how much drunker he is you can <laughs> hear him getting progressively drunker yes. and the guitar playing gets sloppier but th- that looseness is something that I always found thrilling with him at mm. the beginning of 115th Dream where he just starts laughing mm. and they sort of leave Tom Wilson in laughing yeah. and then mm. you p- if, either that's going to be the sort of thing that frustrates you or it's the sort of thing if you're 15 or 16 years old and you listen to that that you might think well this is obviously the coolest man that's ever lived you know this is the most exciting this is the most exciting music that you could possibly have come up with. Um, yeah, and that sort of roughness and looseness is something that I always loved with him. But the bootleg series and the way that they've kind of staggered the release of them and the sense that there's possibly even more that we've not heard, oh, yeah. it, it just sort of deepens your understanding. In that Sean O'Hagan piece, there's a bit in it that I always remember where he says something like, and the Dylan Boars. He refers to the Dylan Boars, and he says, "Because there is no bore like a Dylan Boar." <laughs> Shit. <laughs> Which I think is something we can all relate to. Yeah. We've all, as, you, as the people who are listening to this podcast, we have all been the are Dylan we the bad Boars. Guys? We are, no, no, we're the good guys. <laughs> But that's the problem with him is that there's so much and there's so much depth to it. And if you choose to, you could go so deep. And I think that's why people become obsessive about him, because there's a lot to take in. Is It Rolling Bob? Talking Dylan is recorded in the Nellie Johnson suite at Lip Sync Studios. Engineered by Mark Langley-Smith and produced by Robin Geis. Music is by Sam Hare. We're part of Pantheon Podcasts, the music podcast network. Find us on Twitter at IsItRollingPod. Man thinks because he rules the earth, he can do with it as he please. And if things don't change soon, he will. Oh, man has invented his doom. First step was touching the moon. Now there's a woman on my block. She just sit there as the night grows still. She say, who gonna take away his license to kill?